You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com. We're in a series in the book of 1 Peter. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn over to chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 22 today. Our, Our series is called Living Excellent Lives. And we've been walking through, particularly last week, we really looked at what it means to suffer. And as Peter is talking to his fellow Christians, those who are in a place where politically things are not going their way, they're misunderstood. As these Christians try to navigate culture, it is not a friendly and warm and welcoming place. They are watching their loved ones be carried away to prison. They are seeing those in their community martyred. They are experiencing loss of property, and they are trying to figure out in this storm-tossed life, in a place where I don't know where to look or what to do, what am I supposed to do in living? And Peter is pointing them to the truth about that other in the fire. He's pointing them to Jesus. He is pointing them to the reality that we are not alone in this life. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, we have a different way of seeing the world. And so this morning, the title of the sermon is From Suffering to Session. Now, I'll go ahead and confess a couple of things this morning. One, the power was off at our house. The garage doors didn't work. We haven't found another GFI yet to switch it on. So the pastor has had a great opportunity to assess his heart with his family in a crowded car running late. So I know y'all all have it together, but in case you don't, I just want you to know, sometimes April showers bring May flowers. We ought to have an abundance by May, right? So this morning, I want you to know, sometimes when we gather in this place, as we look at a passage that will be challenging for us, as we look at a passage that sometimes can be confusing, I hope that you will take and just savor the goodness of God in this. As we look at this and we think about from suffering to session, I put that title out there and immediately I was given some questions. Questions like, did autocorrect take over for you? Did you really mean to write session? To which I just grinned and said, yes, I did. Sometimes it's good for us to use words we don't use every day because it causes us to think and it makes us consider some things. So when I say from suffering to session, I want you to know what I mean by the word session. When it comes to the idea of session, for those of you who maybe come from a Presbyterian background, when the elders gather and they're there to serve the church and pray for her and look to get things done, they meet and they take their seats and they are in session. When it comes to our Congress, you will hear on the news that Congress is in session. When it comes to the courtroom, there comes this moment where after the judge has come in and he has invited people uh, to be seated, that the court is now in session. So as you think about this, the idea of from suffering to session is talking about what Christ has done in moving from Really, humiliation to exaltation, from suffering to session. See, as we we think about the Bible and we think about the story of Jesus, we often run through kind of the checklist of the familiar things. 
you know, Jesus' birth, his incarnation, we know about that. We think about his life and ministry and consider the sick and the blind and, and those that he would heal and interact with. We think upon, especially as we near this resurrection season, we will think about his passion, his suffering and death. And then in a couple of Sundays as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, where we commemorate the fact that Christ has risen from the dead. He has defeated every enemy, including the last enemy, death. But one of the things that I think sometimes we miss is, after he rose from the dead, he goes out with his disciples, and he ascends back into heaven. In this ascension, the blessed truth that the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, will come and dwell in power and change everything— is about to happen, but as Christ ascends, the way that it is described is that he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And as we come to this particular portion of Scripture, Psalm 110 is quoted over and over and over throughout Scripture. Jesus even used it when he's asking the religious leaders, okay, so if we're just talking about, you know, what it means to be King David and all this stuff, why did he say, the Lord said to my Lord, who is this Lord? And it caused them a great deal of question and confusion. For you see, one of the beautiful truths for us is this. Christ has not only defeated every enemy, but at the right hand of our Father, mediating a new and better covenant, he is in session until the Father says, it's time to set everything right. Go and make all things new. And so I want us to consider from suffering to session. Now, before we begin in verse 18, it's important for us to remember where we left off. We had asked the question, it was somewhat rhetorical, what is it? There's no good in you suffering for doing evil, but if you should suffer, suffer for doing good. And in this suffering for doing good, Peter now says, okay, if we're going to talk about suffering for doing good, there can be no greater example for us than Jesus. He has called our attention drastically to Jesus in chapter 1 to call us to holy living. He has called our attention to Jesus there in chapter 2 to remind us of who we are. And now he calls our attention in chapter 3 as we discuss suffering so that we may be reminded that from suffering to session, Jesus reigns. So we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. Would you stand with me that we might honor the reading of God's word together this morning? 1 Peter 1, chapter 3, beginning of verse 18, the Bible says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. May God bless the reading of his word. Receive it as his living word this day. You may be seated. 
So Peter takes us and he says, okay, if you suffer for doing good, let me remind you that Jesus too suffered. A comforting thing to know that Jesus suffered. But as he talks us through this, he says, I want you to know he suffered once for sins. Now, Peter had grown up in more of a rural area. The north end of the Sea of Galilee, there in the area of Capernaum, as he grew up, he grew up in small Jewish communities. They were not a part of Jerusalem, the epicenter for the Jewish people, but where he was as a Jewish boy, he had been taught the law. They would take him and he would be reminded of Abraham and Moses and the prophets, and they would walk through these things, but he was very familiar with a sacrificial system. And for many of us, when we read the scripture, you read of these seemingly archaic and grotesque accounts where animals are slaughtered and sometimes by the thousands before fire falls and consumes things as the temple is offered or the tabernacle ministry begins. And when we think of these things, sometimes we forget that the reality is this was a daily sacrifice. Of course, we, we know that we struggle with sin every day, so a, a sacrifice for sin daily was a picture meant to point to something greater. The Bible tells us that none of those sacrifices was ever meant to take away sin. And so as we read these things, as God has told us who he is and told us how we should live and told us how he is at work, He is giving these pictures. And the picture is this, I will be willing to accept an appropriate substitute on behalf of you for sin. And he gave very strict parameters for this. You could just offer any sacrifice. The sacrifices that had to be offered, they had to be without blemish and spotless. These were not the, the things that wouldn't cost you something. It was a, a reminder that God's holy standard was so high that there was no way that we could measure up. And so when he talks about this being done just once, we need to remember that when we read about all those sacrifices, they were never intended to save. But when we read of those things, it points us to something greater. And the way that we understand looking back is through the lens of Jesus. Paul tells us that when it comes to sacrifice, when we think of the Passover sacrifice, that Jesus is our Passover lamb. All these pictures that came to be, Peter now says, listen, I want you to know Christ suffered once for sins. Now, when it comes to his suffering for sin, he puts a qualifier in there. It's very important that we don't miss the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, when we think of Christ's suffering and we think about this, as Athanasius would call it, this glorious exchange, righteousness for unrighteousness, sometimes I think we try to fall into this religious trap, perhaps inadvertently, but we think that salvation and being in Christ is really about what we can do, how good we can be, how many boxes we can check off, how many lists we get through. How many good things that we do. And if we're not careful, we fall into this religious trap where we're trying to earn God's favor by some kind of merit, some kind of work, some kind of grouping of things that we have done. But Peter says, I want you to understand that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. 
You see, when Jesus came, he preached a sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, and he just really blew everyone's mind. He said, listen, I know that there are many of you out there, and, and you think, okay, I've been keeping the law. I'm doing a good job. And so he would say, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. People would take a deep breath and go, made it. I hadn't killed anybody yet. If traffic gets much worse, I'm thinking about it, right? But Jesus said, but I, I say to you, anybody who hates his brother is already guilty of murder. And suddenly the people are taken aback because we think, oh, well, I mean, I, my behavior was there, but he points us to a greater reality. The righteousness that is required is a righteous standard that we cannot attain. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ not only satisfied the law in the behavioral standards, but he satisfied it in its internal standards. Because the Bible tells us that sin starts in our hearts, and it's due to the fact that we are by nature people prone to make mistakes, people prone to greed, violence, selfishness. So he says he suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous. In this suffering that Jesus endured unjustly for no crime of his own, it was not some sort of accident, but he suffered for doing good. And so Peter says, I want you to know, if you're suffering for doing good, Jesus also suffered for doing good. But his suffering accomplished something wonderful. See, this is the truth of the gospel that I think sometimes we miss while we're trying to be religious. The truth of the gospel is this. I could never get it all right. And I don't know if your experience is like mine, but it seems like sometimes the harder I try, the more I fail. The frustration of patterns that I think I should be past these by now and they continue to recur in my life. These struggles in heart that you would think, okay, surely I can be free of this, but it's not. And in a glorious exchange... Christ gives me his perfection for my imperfection. His holiness for my wickedness. His purity for my filth. His life for my death. You see, as we, we come to this, Jesus makes the way that we live completely different. Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. And in that forgiveness, I think sometimes we don't even appreciate just how vast and huge it is. Jesus not only takes away the penalty of sin, Jesus not only uh, takes away and forgives our sin and, and removes it from us, but in that forgiveness, he gives us his righteousness. He imputes it or credits it or hands it as a gift to us. He wraps us and shrouds us in his righteousness. So when the father looks at me, he sees the righteousness of the son and he has favor upon me, not for anything that I have done, but all because of what Jesus has done. Dear ones, many of you have spent your life frustrated by church. Many of you are still trying to earn your salvation. Can I just tell you, salvation is found in none other than Jesus. And it is not a heavy burden of you trying to get everything together and get everything right and correct all your faults and all your mistakes. It is about the fact that in and of yourself you are dead in trespasses and sins and you cannot, but God would not leave you hopeless. And so Christ suffered 
the fulfillment that God had been showing over and over and over. I'll be willing to accept a substitute, but that substitute has to be very special and unique. And so the only begotten Son of God, the sinless Lamb, who takes away the sin of the world, suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The separation and alienation from God is the result of sin. Our, our first parents there in, in the garden when sin entered the world, it, it is an alienation and separation. They separated from each other and hid. Uh, they separated and hid themselves from God and there was this gap that couldn't be crossed by anything that they could do. They tried, but it didn't work. And this is the way that Christ brings us to God in an infinitely wide gap that we can't cross on our own. Christ, the sinless one, suffered that we might be brought to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, it's important in this that we don't enter into the wrong way of thinking. Salvation is not just meant to be that my spirit escapes this body. The ultimate fulfillment of our salvation comes on the day not because our spirit escaped this body, as Paul describes it, this body of death, but the ultimate fulfillment of our salvation is when in heaven we receive a new body like the first fruits, Jesus. See, when Jesus came back to life, he didn't just come back to life. Because if he had just come back to life, there were others who had come back to life. You think through Scripture, there are many stories of widows who lost sons that came back to life. You think of the friend of Jesus, Lazarus. Many came back to life. You see, when Jesus came back to life, he didn't come back to the same kind of life. Having defeated every enemy, having accomplished what God sent him to do, he is a brand new kind of life. He is the new Adam who succeeded where the old Adam failed, and in that life, I will receive a body and I will be like him, fit for heaven. So let us not set up some kind of idea that it's just because I need to be disembodied from here. Let us remember that Christ has secured a brand new kind of life. And so he says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, this is verse 19 and verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, as we come to this place, the students of Scripture are all very excited about this little part here. There are many questions that come around these verses. Who are these spirits? Where did Christ go? Who's he preaching to? What's the deal with Noah? How come we're talking about all this stuff? And so I want you to know, I'm not sure. But lest you think too lowly of me, let me tell you what Martin Luther wrote in his commentary about this. He said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty what just, just what Peter means. Well, if Martin Luther's not sure, I think I'm okay not quite being sure. But I'm going to tell you this morning, there are basically about four different views that are commonly held, and I'll tell you exactly where I am on this journey for me. 
The question arises, sometimes due to the Apostles' Creed, sometimes due to some non-Orthodox teaching in Scripture, the idea that Jesus went to hell and that there was some sort of preaching slash discussion slash proclamation and we're working through these things. The early church father, Augustine, said it wasn't that exactly. It was that the Spirit of Christ through Noah was preaching to the people who were alive there in Genesis chapter 6. It wasn't actually, and then Jesus did that. And so when you look at these things, there are certain timelines that you're going to have to decide on and certain factors that go into this where you have to decide, okay, where do I land? Another understanding of this is that these are some of the uh, Old Testament saints who died, and then they were actually liberated by Christ between his death and his ascension. There are others still who think that these are some of the imprisoned spirits, these um, imprisoned spirits that perished during the flood. And so Christ went in that interval, he descended into hell, and he preached to them, offering them the opportunity to repent and believe. Now, all of these different ones are going to have certain challenges and certain things that we can affirm. So for me, in my journey right now, here is my understanding. When it comes to this idea of spirits, that Greek word is normally not referred to as creatures like me, humans. It is more often referred to angelic creatures. So when you think about this, the Bible tells us in an unseen realm that there are creatures whom God created. We call them angels. Within that group of angels, some fell, and we now describe them, those fallen ones, as demons, fallen angels, and angels that are really at work in darkness. And then there are other angels that did not fall, and those are the ones who make up this heavenly host. There are archangels, and seraphim, and cherubim, and all, all these sorts of things. And so when you read this, I, I want you to know there is a glorious reality that happens in an unseen realm. Ephesians chapter 3 says right now in an unseen realm that the manifold wisdom of God is on display for angels as we gather here. How many of you got out of the car while it was raining this morning and thought, all right, angels, watch this. How many of you even considered this unseen realm as we're just going about our days? But the reality is we know that there is one according to the testimony of Scripture. And what we know about it is this. They're not omniscient, so they don't know everything. They too have been witnessing God's story, his progressive unveiling of who he is. And as they have been learning their leader, our adversary, from the very beginning, God pronouncing a curse that there's going to be one that's going to crush you. The reality of what they observed on Good Friday must have been something quite different than the legions of angels at Christ's disposal that had to stand at bay. And for the fallen ones, perhaps taking joy and delight in thinking, I have unraveled God's plan. He is no longer going to crush. This has been done away with. But what they didn't understand is they were actually opening up the gates for the king of glory. For in three days, 
to demonstrate his power over all things, to vindicate the truth that everything was finished, and to show that he is Lord over all things, Christ Jesus conquered the last enemy death and raised to life. And in that glorious resurrection, perhaps in gloomy places described in Jude 6, Perhaps in 2 Peter where it talks about angels longing to look into our redemption. Somewhere in a place that's not quite described, all of creation knew. For Christ is proclaimed victor over all things. And there is a coming day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess through the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. This proclamation to these unseen spirits, Jesus is king, and the king is taking his seat in session. And so as Peter writes these words, you can't help but think of Peter remembering He knows what it's like when you see the suffering. He remembers the sting of his last words to his king being, I'll stay with you even unto death, and then watching the suffering of Christ until he gave his life. But he also knows what joy it was when on that morning, Jesus' instructions said this, go to the disciples and Peter. Tell them I'm alive. Hope filling the group. Some encountering him, whether it be on a road to Emmaus or in a locked room, and those who didn't one day saying, I'm not going to believe this unless I can physically put my hands in Jesus coming into the room saying, okay, Thomas, here are my hands. Would it be helpful for you to put your hand here in my side? Christ, victorious, and Peter knows what these who are suffering He wants them to be reminded Jesus is victorious. Although we be a small group, reminded of Noah, he plus seven others. Although the suffering be so intense, although the waters of chaos trying to drown and destroy us, there is one who has passed through the waters. There is one who has conquered every enemy. And even in the days of Noah, when it seemed like everything else was falling apart, when it seemed like the world was going to just stop moving, when it seemed that God's judgment would consume everything in a single act, God who is merciful and kind, saved through water. Because one day one would save us through the greatest flood of sin the greatest fire of sin. And so when he speaks of the fact that he went and proclaimed, sometimes we we get this idea of this descent into hell, but the same verb is used in that verse and in verse 22, and it just talks about going to a place. There's no uh, connection to an idea of descent. It is simply the same verb that he went into heaven. He's gone into heaven. So he went and proclaimed, or he has gone and proclaimed. The likelihood is that perhaps this term is actually used just to make the point that there are those unseen spirits who are confined in gloomy places, according to Jude 6, until the final day of judgment. And he speaks of God's patience. 
He, he talks about the fact that when it comes to this, he's proclaiming they didn't obey, and God's patience waited in the days of Noah, according to the testimony of Scripture, some 120 years. I'm so thankful for God's patience. And even though these patient, this patience was poured out, even though they were not responding, even though there was nothing that would commend anybody to God in his mercy and kindness, eight passengers on a boat filled with creatures, found mercy. Peter's readers must have been very encouraged. Though their numbers be small, Jesus is great. And he speaks of baptism, and when he speaks of baptism, sometimes we get a little hung up because it says, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. So if it's true that baptism just saves people, Let's just get water guns, go to the mall, and take care of all this, right? So the question arises, okay, well, what does he mean? If, if baptism saves us, I thought baptism didn't save us. What are we supposed to do this? He quickly tells us it's not as a removal of dirt. The mechanical aspects of just being baptized is not what saves someone. That is an act of obedience which appeals from a good conscience, and the only way to have a good conscience is that Christ must raise you to life. It is a step of obedience. It's a picture. A picture that I'm being purified from sin because of what Christ has done. And as he moves through, he says, Jesus now has gone into heaven. He is in session at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers. And they've all been subjected to him. He's telling them, listen, I want you to know that even though there are Roman magistrates, even though there are martyrs, even though the Colosseum is filled with the blood of the martyrs, even though there is suffering and property loss and all these things, Jesus rules and reigns. He's been talking to us about submission and subjection to authorities, even if they be ungodly. And he flips the table completely and says, even though Christ subjected himself to death on the cross between two thieves. He has now reversed all of that, and Jesus Christ reigns victorious in session at the right hand of the Father. Suffering looks different for us. For those who are in Christ Jesus, we suffer differently because this is not the end for me. And however long this life is, is nothing more than a drop in the ocean of eternity. It's not pleasant, it's difficult, it's called suffering for a reason, but I know that there is a glorious, glorious end because there's one who is in session right now. So four things I commend to you. What does this tell us? Well, one, it tells us that Christ suffered, which means he understands your suffering. He, he understands your suffering. If you're like me, anytime you have difficulty or hardship, I will be slow to use the word suffering, but anytime that happens, oftentimes I want to start singing the song, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow, but I don't want to get around to the chorus where it says nobody but Jesus. Jesus suffered, the good suffering for the unrighteous. So he understands it. And as we sang, he'll be with us in that suffering. And that perfect sacrifice gives us hope. The second thing is that Christ's suffering brings us to God. This is how you get to God. 
Peter has been using Isaiah over and over and over. And in Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12, it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He just told us in verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good if that's God's will. And then he's, we're reminded of the passage in Isaiah, it's the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief so that when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By the knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Every time my adversary shows up, to tell my heavenly father where I failed again. My king steps in. And says that failure has been swallowed up in victory. That failure no longer remains. For there's no condemnation for this one. He is in me. And my righteousness stands. Dear ones, it is not because of what you are able to do. It is because of what Christ has done, and it's his suffering that brings us. Removing the alienation, removing the gap, brings us to God. Third thing, Christ's victory came through suffering. This victorious declaration, this proclamation, even the spiritual powers of evil at work are not beyond Christ's control. In the Older Testament, it was said this way, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Peter on the day of Pentecost when preaching says, listen, you handed over the Holy One of God. But this was all according to plan. You think that you are in control, but there is a king who sovereignly reigns over all things. And in his divine wisdom, Christ's victory came through suffering. But fourthly, it also means that Christ's session means that the ultimate victory will be ours. In this life, as we start this passage, it starts with his suffering, but it ends with his session. At the right hand of God, with everything subject to him, with no rival and no equal, King Jesus, having given his life for the unrighteous, having finished all that the Father has given him to do, Peter says, listen to me, beloved, when you suffer, it's different for us. Do not give up in the pain. Do not think that God has forgotten. There is a high king in heaven, and he has already won. Endure and long for the day. So what do we do? Three things. One, if called to suffer, suffer well, suffer differently. It's different. For the Christian, it's, it's just, it's not the same. Jesus suffered. His suffering has secured my salvation. Jesus is better than anything. The second thing, preach the gospel to yourself daily. You need to remind yourself that it's his righteousness in which I stand. Because when we sing the song and it says that one day I'm going to be before his thr throne and I'm going to be faultless, it will not be because I got all the stuff right and I finally got it all together. It will be because Christ has placed his righteousness. He has shrouded me in it. He has wrapped me in it. I am his. And in an unbreakable union sealed by the Spirit, he will raise me up at the last day. 
fit for heaven. And the last thing, worship Jesus in his session. The king reigns, dear ones. You can look around and you can watch the news. You can see the world and you can see all that's going on. But I want you to know the king reigns. And there's never been a day that he didn't reign. And he is good and he is kind. And when he needed no thing, he commended his love for us in this while we were still sinners. The righteous died for the unrighteous. And he gives me his life so that I might have life eternal.